We've been going to the Old Testament. We're up to 1 Samuel chapter 27. In the last chapter, David had a major victory. He had another chance to kill King Saul, but he refused to do it. So he passed the test by not killing God's anointed king. But what happens right after a spiritual victory? I mean, we know this. <laughs> the devil comes and he tries to steal our joy. And I believe David was going to, to get hit with that very thing as we see the next chapter here. So we, we learn from that. We need to keep our guard up. Uh, we need to realize that that's one of the enemy's tricks. So we need to be prepared for that. When we've just seen a victory from the Lord, uh, we know that the enemy, he's, he doesn't play fair, the devil. He's relentless. Uh, we, can, we can almost tell for sure when he's going to come right after we've seen a spiritual a victory there. So don't let your guard down. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm reminding you of this now. I'm asking you to remind of these things as well to, to let me know when I get sucker punched by the devil too because uh, sometimes that happens. All right, in chapter 27, let's jump into verse 1 here. And again, it starts out pretty strange as you just, uh, if you just read through chapter 26 and saw the victory uh, that David was able to make through there. It says in chapter 27, verse, verse 1, David said in his heart, now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. <laughs> there is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines. So again, the first time you're reading through this, you're thinking, well, wait a minute, David. Uh, look what Saul just said, you know, and we saw that in chapter 26. So if you look back to 26 verse 21, Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son, David. For I will harm you no more, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. So he said he would harm him no more. And then down in verse 25, Saul said, May you be blessed, my son David. You shall both do great things and also still prevail. So you almost want to say to David here, Did you forget that Saul said those things? I mean, it sounds like. Saul is saying, I'm, I'm not going to chase anymore. I was very wrong in doing that. God's going to bless you. Everything's cool, you know. And I think David realizes at, by this time how unstable King Saul was. And uh, he knew that it, Saul might wake up another morning on the wrong side of the bed and have some more thoughts about, I think I need to go back to hunting David today, you know, and, and start that process all over again. Also, I think here we're going to see, as we, we look at this a little bit closer, I think David was really tired, you know, uh, not only physically from being on the run from Saul all the time, but also from the stress that goes with that, you know, of having to always look over your shoulder all the time. Uh, that, can, that can really wear a person down. And the enemy likes to mess with, us, mess with us when we're tired, you know, so we need to be aware of that as well. He's looking for a cheap shot. He's looking for when our guard is down. He's looking for when we're at a point of weakness. Uh, that's when the enemy likes to try to do something. So here's David. He's at this low point in his life right now. He's been in training from the Lord. And we know that David's going to be uh, in a 10-year period of this training because we have the end of the story. We know how long this lasts. Uh, David does not have an idea of how long he may have to go through such difficult times. So at this point where David's at right here, he's been on the run for about eight and a half years. So from our perspective, we know you've only got another year and a half, man. Hang in there, you know? But he doesn't see that. 
Uh, for him, it's going to take another year and a half before things start getting better. But, but he doesn't know that there is an end to this. He doesn't know that there's light at the end of the tunnel. After eight and a half years of being on the run, you might start to think, too, is this going to be my life? You know, I mean, I've got to keep running until I finally stumble and Saul finally gets his spear in me like he wants to. So David's, he's really down at this point. When the, and when the Lord puts us through trials, we got to remember this. He's preparing us for the future. I mean, David had a promise, right? God said, you are going to be the next king of Israel. He's already anointed him for that. So he's got a promise from God. But, you know, we, we go through these difficulties, and sometimes it's hard to remember, why are things so difficult? Why are they so hard? And the Lord is letting us know through passages like this, I'm doing a work in you. I'm preparing you. I have something I need you to do, and I've got to put you through this training so you're ready for it when it comes. Now, David, he's going to be the next king in Israel, and he's going to be the greatest king that Israel has ever seen until the coming of the Messiah. So the Lord is going to put 10 years of hard training into him to get him ready for that. Okay, So be patient when you're going through trials. We don't know what lies ahead, what the Lord is preparing us for, what he's going to do. Just hang in there through the training, though, because the Lord knows what he's doing. He knows exactly what we need to be trained to do his work. I know sometimes we question that and say, Lord, do I really need this much? <laughs> and the Lord says, yes, you do. So uh, he keeps, keeps it coming. So in our passage, the Lord was preparing David to be that greatest king. And it's, it's very difficult training because he's going to have a lot of responsibility when he steps into that position. So it's, it's hard to see David go through this, but uh, we can relate to some of the stuff that we see. Now, notice where David is coming from here, because the Lord gives us some interesting insights. The first thing it says there in verse 1 is David said this in his heart. So we don't see David praying here. We don't see him asking for God's guidance. Instead, he's making a terrible mistake. He's leaning on his own understanding rather than trusting God with all of his heart. Now, we know that David can be a man of prayer, you know, but right here, I think he doesn't want any more of God's will for his life. <laughs> I think he's saying, if it's this hard, if it's this long, if it's this difficult, I think I'll get off right here. <laughs> so this is a good getting off point for me. And it has been very hard for him, you know. Uh, I can imagine, and if you thought about this, here's David, a young guy, He's a shepherd, you know, all of a sudden he's pulled into the house. All his brothers are staring at him like, why did we even bother to bring him in? You know, and then Samuel anoints him in front of the family as the next king of Israel and that. And David may have been wondering, is this real, you know? And then as he sees the Lord start to work in his life, he takes out Goliath and that. Uh, you can almost see David getting pumped up thinking, I got this, you know? And then the Lord starts bringing the pressure on him. He now has, uh, he gets brought into a position before King Saul. He's, he's in the very throne room of the king, and all of a sudden the king turns on him, you know, tries to start killing him. So here's David again thinking, I thought this was going to keep going up and up and up. You know, I didn't know we were going to go down and down and down for a while here. So here's this guy who's wondering, what is God's will for me going to be? I mean, I'm hearing the one thing, but I'm seeing a whole different story. Life is a whole lot harder than I thought. Maybe we thought that too as we got saved and came to Christ. 
Maybe we thought, this is going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. It's always going to go uphill. <laughs> you know, it's going to be great. We'll keep getting higher. But then you find out that, wow, this is difficult. This is tough, you know. And uh, poor David here, you think about him. Instead of listening to God at this point, he's listening to his own heart. And that can be disastrous. Now, notice what David says as we read the rest of verse 1 here. It says, uh, his heart says, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines. So he's going to go to the enemy. Okay, that's his, his idea of getting away from God's will. And then Saul will de- despair of me. His thinking is, Saul's going to be fed up with me if I do that. Uh, he's not going to seek me anymore in any part of Israel. So I shall escape out of his hand. So this is the only thing on his mind right now. I want to get away from Saul. Whatever it takes, if i got to go live among the enemy, I will do that just to get away from King Saul. This is his plan. It's not God leading him in this. This is all David's idea. So notice here he uses the word escape in that passage two times. So it's like he's saying if this is how hard God's will is going to be, then I want out of here. I don't want any more of it. Have you ever felt that way? It's possible to get to that point. We know that because here's David, a man of God, a man after God's own heart, and he's there. He's at the point where he wants to get off the, the roller coaster, you know, and says, I've had enough. But you think about this. Jesus never promised us an easy way to go. You know, he said things like, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. He says, take up your cross. You know, it's like take up your electric chair, you know, what you're going to die in and follow me. And he says things like, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Now, does that sound like an easy path? (laughs) No, it sounds pretty tough. So the Lord warns us about these things that it's not going to be an easy way to follow him. We live in a wicked world. This wicked world is going against the direction that God wants. So when we line up with the Lord, we're coming against all that. All that pressure is now coming against us. So those words don't make it sound like it's a fun thing or an easy thing to be a Christian. But it's very, very much worth it. It's just not an easy way to go. So David here, he wasn't wanting to just take a break for a while and catch his breath. I really think David just wanted out. Wow. Like somebody said, though, even though it may be hard and difficult to stay in God's will at times, there is something that's a whole lot worse, and that is getting out of God's will and disobeying him. The temptation here is for us to take our life back into our own hands and just get ourselves out of God's will, and that's what we see David trying to do here. You know, and that's just what this is. It's a temptation to do that. So when that happens to us, we are being tempted to sin, okay, to take our life back from what the Lord has done in paying for us. So don't try kidding yourself by saying, oh, I'm just going to take an easier path for my life. No, it's way bigger than that. You're sinning by trying to walk away from God's will for your life, okay? David even says in this passage, if you noticed here, This is a sad statement. He said, there is nothing better for me than, and then he has his idea of what would be better for him, to go live among the enemy. Nothing better for your life than to go live among the enemy? Really? 
Yeah, so he's believing the lie, you know, and that's where he's at right now. If you can say this statement, there's nothing better for me than, and then you fill in the rest of that, and the rest of that statement doesn't end with than to do God's will for my life, there's nothing better for me than to do God's will for my life, then you've given yourself the wrong answer too, and you are being tempted to sin. So there's a way to identify if the enemy's twisted our thinking and he's got us believing a lie on that one. So do you know what's better for him than to speedily, as he says here, uh, go and do his own thing? It's to do God's will and to stay strong in God's will, to stay right there. It's not an easier thing to do. David's looking for an easier way out, but it will definitely be the better thing for him to stay in God's will. When people get to what appears to be a dead end in their life, they're not ready to get, they're ready to give up and they might say things like this, well, I don't have any other choice. You probably heard people say that, you know? But that's not true. As long as God is still alive, you always have more choices. So don't ever give up. That's a trick the enemy plays to try to tell us, you're at a dead end road. You got nowhere else to go. This is your only choice. That's a lie from the enemy. With the Lord, he has many choices for us. We just have to repent and come and do things his way, okay? It's just that David here, he has his mind made up and he doesn't want God's input, you know, so we don't see him praying. He just wants to do it his own way and that is never a good thing (laughs) to do things our own way, all right? Look at verse two in the passage here. Then David arose and he went over with the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the, the, Achish there, the son of Maok, king of Gath. So he's been to this area of Gath before. This is where Goliath was from, remember? Last time he went there, he ran right into a brick wall. He had to act like he was crazy just to survive to get out of there. God rescued him from that. But in his mind, I'm going to give it another shot here, okay? So we notice another problem here with David. His decision doesn't, doesn't just affect himself. Look how many lives he's influencing here. He's taken his 600 men with him. And in verse 3, it says, So David dwelt with the quiche at Gath, he and his men, each man with his household. So that means they brought their families along. And it says, David with his two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. So not only does he make this decision to go live among the enemy, to flee God's will for his life, and it doesn't just affect him. It affects all these other people involved. So when we choose to listen to ourselves and not to God, we can be messing up not just our own life, but the lives of others that we care about too. You notice here, coming in interesting, that the the Philistines at Gath, they're not ready to kill David like they were the last time he went there. I think it's because now they know that King Saul's been chasing David. That story is spread all over the place by now, I'm sure. So they're, they're looking at David and saying, this guy's an outcast from Israel. I mean, the king's chasing him. So he can't have too much going for him there. And in their conclusion, I think they're figuring, I'd rather have David fighting on my side than fighting against me. So instead of them trying to kill David, now they're trying to recruit him. And also, I think they say, hey, he's got 600 soldiers with him, and these guys are tough. So we'd rather have them on our side, too, rather than against us. So the people of Gath, they don't argue at all about him coming there. Kind of interesting picture. 
When the enemy's ready to welcome you, you need to realize something's wrong with that, right? I must be doing something that's way off if the enemy's saying, come over here, I'll be glad to put my arm around your shoulder. Uh, verse 4 goes on. It was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he sought him no more. Now that's kind of an interesting thing too, because it makes it sound like Saul did stop chasing David because he went to Gath. So maybe... He was about to flip again, you know, and go after David, even though he said he wouldn't do that anymore. <laughs> so David's plan here of going to Gath appears to have worked. At least it looked that way up front. He said all he wanted was to get out of the hand of Saul. Well, that's happened, but there's a lot of strings attached when you go to live among the enemy. Verse 5 says, Then David said to Achish, If I have now found favor in your eyes... Let them give me a place in some town in the country that I may dwell there. And here's his reasoning, he tells the king anyway. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So apparently David wants to be in a place in a quieter town so he doesn't have the royal soldiers watching over his every move. But he was very sneaky in the way that he presented this to the king because he makes it sound like, I'm just not worthy to live in the same place that you are. This is the royal city. So let me go on one of these little country towns. I'll be fine out there. And really, I think from the rest of the story, it looks like he's just trying to get eyes off of him because he's got plans and what he wants to do. So verse 6. So Akish gave him Ziklag that day, a little town there. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one full year in four months. So there's that year and a half that David's not going to have a good testimony for. Who knows what would have happened if he'd have stayed in the Lord's will and just kept hanging in there with Saul breathing down his neck for a year and a half. But he doesn't have that testimony now because he stepped out of God's way. Okay. So here he goes to the king and the king goes for his idea. He allows David to remain here for some time. And you think about this even we mess up, you know, we can see that the Lord still watches over us. David's in a place for a year and a half here just about, and he's going to be okay as far as physically. You know, things are going to be all right for him. But even though the Lord still watches over us and protects us and that, it doesn't mean we should intentionally mess up, you know. Uh, even when we make bad choices, the Lord can graciously keep us safe like he did here with David. Uh, we're told in Romans, you know, just because there's so much grace, should we continue to sin? The answer is no way. It should never happen. Our God is very gracious. He helps us even when we're, we're messed up, but we don't intentionally do that just to take advantage of that grace. The Lord tells us that's wrong. So verse 8 here, David and his men went up. They raided the Geshurites, the Gizrites, and the Amalekites, three different people groups here. For those nations were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as you go to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. So these people groups that David was attacking, they were very wicked people. Uh, they were some of the people the Lord had told the Israelites to destroy off the land when Joshua first led God's people into the promised land. So these people were enemies to Israel, and through these attacks... The Lord was allowing David to sharpen his military skills further, so he's got a year and a half more worth of military training, and it also helps keep his soldiers in good fighting shape. But it's also 
uh, it's clearing off the land from some of the wicked people that the Lord had originally told Israel, get these people out of here. So it's possible that although David had given up any idea of being the future king of Israel, maybe he was thinking, you know, at least I can help Israel by weaken some of these enemies that are still in the land. We don't know. David doesn't give us uh, anything here. The Lord doesn't show us any insight into what's really running through his mind. But we know David does have a heart for Israel. He does care about the people. He's uh, put his own needs above them right now, but it looks like he's still trying to do something on the side. Uh, verse 9 goes on, Whenever David attacked the land, he left neither man nor woman alive, but he took away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the apparel, and returned and came to Achish. So he came back to his home base. So even though the Lord had told the Israelites to remove the people from the land, we find later on that David wasn't doing it all for that reason. His main goal was to kill any possible witnesses that might try to come back and tell King Achis what he's really doing. So David wasn't honorable in the things he did here, and it was basically uh, just a record of David in a backslidden state, the Lord shows us here. We get from this, you know, whenever we set out to ignore God's will, we end up doing some very disgraceful things, and then we have to live with those things that we've done. And that can be hard sometimes. It's much better just to walk with the Lord and follow his ways in the first place. Following our own flesh never turns out to be a good thing. Man, if we could just get that down, you know. Uh, we get tempted sometimes and the enemy says, come on, you can try this, it'll be good. It never turns out to be a good thing, okay. Verse 10 goes on. Then Akish would say, where have you made a raid today? Because he knew, you could tell David coming back with probably some blood on him and stuff, and he knows they were out fighting somewhere. And David would say, against the southern area of Judah. Or he might come back the next time, and he says, where do you raid today? And he'd say, against the southern area of the Jeshramelites, or against the southern area of the Kenites. So he had answers ready in case he was asked. And by saying it the way he did, David gave the impression that he was attacking Jews. So he's being very deceptive in the way he answered. He obviously doesn't want uh, the Philistines to know that he's been attacking some of their allies and wiping them out. Uh, he knew that would not be good for him. So he makes it sound like he's really going in the Israel territory and, and working, up the, working over the Israelites here. So the, the, the king here is thinking this is, this is good that he's doing this stuff. But you know, you think about this from David's perspective. These are methods that we're reduced to when we're not walking in obedience to the Lord, using deception, you know, telling tales and stuff, it's just not good. Verse 11, David would save neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath. That's why he did it. He killed the men and women so there was no one who could escape and tell the king what David had done and where he had done it. And he said this, lest they should inform on us, saying, thus David did. And thus was his behavior all the time he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. So what's your testimony, David, for that year and a half? I lied to the king all the time. I deceived him. Wow, what a testimony for a believer. Yeah, we can mess up pretty bad. That just shows our flesh is nasty, okay? So uh, here we see the real reason that David completely destroyed all these people. He just didn't want to leave any witnesses behind. So David had selfish reasons for killing these folks. And then on top of that, he lied about it. You know, what a sad testimony. There's not much to brag about there. And when we live selfishly, 
You notice, too, that we don't have any testimony to share about what the Lord was doing in her life. When David gave this report back to the king, you don't see him mention the Lord in that anywhere, right? Verse 12, so Achish believed David, saying, he has made his people Israel utterly abhor him. Therefore, he will be my servant forever. So David's covering his hide on the one side, and Achish is thrilled about on his end because he thinks by David's deceptive work, he thinks he's killing the Jews, he's believing that story. So he's thinking, okay, this is going to further separate David from Israel. And that means that David would be forced to continue to fight for the Philistines. So in his mind, Achish here has concluded, you know, I don't ever have to worry about David leaving me to go be king of Israel because they wouldn't want him. Not if he's killing their own people, right? So uh, all of this was based on lies and deception that David was telling him just to fool the king. So crazy stuff going on. Let's go to the next verse here in chapter 28, verse 1. Now it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. So they're getting pretty stoked up now and think they can take on Israel. So Achish said to David, You assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle, you and your men. So this is where David's disobedience to the Lord has led him. Again, there's something worse than being in God's will when it's difficult, and that is when we're following our own will and we really mess up, and then we have to try to deal with our mess up. (laughs) That's worse still. By trying to escape from Saul and leaving the land of Israel, which is not what the Lord told David to do, David is now told that he will be expected to fight against Israel, and not just him, but all of his soldiers. So his decision, again, has affected a lot of people. And you've got to notice something here. The king wasn't asking David to go. He was ordering him to go. Did you catch that? So he's saying, you will do this. So again, the lesson we get here, you know, if you run with the enemy, don't be surprised when you find yourself one day being told to fight against God's people. That would be a scary thing to hear, and it would be a total disaster if it were to happen, you know? David himself, uh, he, he finds himself at this point here and his men in a very difficult mess. And he does the only thing he can think of on his own. And he gives a very vague answer. <laughs> Look at verse two there. So David said to Achish, surely, because I mean, he just was told, you will go fight with us. And David's answer is, surely you know what your servant can do. <laughs> Well, what did you just say, David? Did you say yes or did you say no? You know, all he says, man, you know what we can do. (laughs) So there's not really an answer, is there, coming from that one. So he couldn't. You think about it. He couldn't say yes, I'll go fight. And he couldn't say no because then the whole army of the Philistines will turn against him and that'll be snuffed out on that side. So you got King Saul killing you or you got these people killing you. He's really got himself in a bad place. This is what happens when we run from God's will. We'll eventually find ourselves with our back against the wall, and the Lord knows how to call us on the carpet. <laughs> he knows how to say, now, now, what was your decision you made again? Yeah, let's talk about that. So then, this king makes David one of the main bodyguards. You know, he's going to put David even closer to having to fight his own people, uh, the Jews, when Achish goes to battle. So you think about this as he says there at the end of verse 2, Uh, his answer after David says that, he says, therefore I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. 
So now he's pulled David really, really close. And when I go to battle, you're going to be right next to me, man. We're going to be killing Jews together. What do you think about that, you know? Like somebody said, this would be a very good place for David to start praying. <laughs> Lord, I'm in way over my head. Please help me, Lord. So verse 3. Now Samuel had died. The Lord's going to jump to the other side and let us in on King Saul's side of things here. Samuel had died. All Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. So Saul doesn't have any place to go right now to get direction. <laughs> Samuel, the man he usually goes to, is gone. So he can't go to him to find out what God wants him to do. And he's put out all the mediums and spiritists of the land. So he can't even go to the devil's side to find out what to do. Verse 4 says, Then the Philistines gathered together, and they came and they camped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel together, and they encamped at Gilboa. Then it says, When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. I think he realizes we're in big trouble. What am I going to do? Because the description he gives here, he's standing on high ground, and all the Philistines or lower in the valley, and he's able to look over them and see just hordes and hordes and hordes and hordes and hordes and nothing but Philistines. And he's, he's scared to death, thinking, oh my goodness, we're in, we're in serious trouble at this point. In verse 6, when Saul inquired of the Lord, he decides to pray now. The Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, which the Lord had given uh, to some, some of the people, you know, to, to declare what he wants done, or by Urim, which is what the priests would use to seek the Lord, or by the prophets. And there wasn't anybody around. You know, everybody in, um, in Saul's cell phone, they weren't answering the call, and God especially was gone silent on him here. So here we see how King Saul shot himself in the foot by not obeying the Lord. As he lines up his, his troops here for battle, he's terrified. He sees the size of the Philistine army. So he knows that he's in way over his head. He needs some divine guidance, you know. But part of the problem is that Samuel's no longer around, so he can't go to him. But there's an even bigger problem for Saul. It's one that he created himself. Do you remember that time he kind of went crazy and he killed all the priest's family? Only one priest escaped. He went with David, you know, or he would have been dead too had he stuck around. So I could just see King Saul maybe thinking out loud, saying, Let, let's go get one of them priests and find out what God has to say. And the guy said, uh, <clears throat> you killed all those guys, remember? They're gone. You took their heads off. They're, they're not with us anymore. Wow. It doesn't pay to lose your head and stuff like that, does it? Yeah, give a crazy guy a spear and you got some problems, right? So the only priest was with David, so he's not going to be able to get to him and ask what to do. Uh, and that, the, the Urim was what the priest would use to seek the Lord's help. So there's not that for him. Had Saul been walking with the Lord, he could have easily gone to the Lord. You know, uh, he, we, we're so blessed in the New Testament. We got the Holy Spirit in us. It's a very short distance. It's a short phone call when we want to talk to God, right? Uh, we can just pray and the Lord's right here. King Saul has distanced himself from God. That was his choice. Had he stayed close, he'd have had a close call, but he didn't have that. So since he's walking contrary to the Lord, now that he wants to hear from God, God's not speaking to him. What's harder than staying in God's will, even when it gets hard, is crying out to God and only hearing silence. Wow. 
And you know what's interesting? It is it's, it's that God, you know, he spoke to Saul for a long time. If you remember some of the stories you saw in the past. He kept telling Samuel, go tell Saul this, go tell Saul that. And, and how does Saul respond? Never paid much attention. You know, put, give me a sticky note and I'll look at it later. Don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. It's only God calling, right? So at best, he would just partially obey the Lord when the Lord tried to speak to him earlier. So in the time past, when the Lord wanted him to do something for him, when he was telling King Saul, do this, Saul didn't care. But now that Saul needs some emergency help, now he expects God to show up and give him an answer. You know, it's sad, but some people aren't interested in the Lord at all until they really need something. <laughs> it's like the panhandlers, you know, that show up at church here sometimes. They're trying to take advantage of the kindness of God's people. They don't want anything to do with God or with his church. They just want a handout. They just want some easy money from the church. And, and that's what really aggravates me about those panhandlers when they come. They don't care about the Lord. They don't care about church. All they want is something, you know. But here we have a picture of that same attitude with King Saul. What God says doesn't really matter. Until now, I need him. Where are you at, Lord? Why aren't you answering me? <laughs> you know? And Lord lets us see how bad this looks from the outside. So verse 7 goes on. And then Saul said to his servants, Find me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, In fact, there is a woman who is a medium in Andor. My first question would be, How would you guys know that? <laughs> you know, yeah, so, the rumors get around, I guess, huh? So Saul disguised himself and put on other clothes, and he went, and two men with him. So he's going to try to go to this lady and get some help, and he's going to disguise himself. Do you remember what King Saul looked like? He's a head taller than anybody else. <laughs> so I'm just got to look at it, this picture. What are you going to do? You're going to disguise yourself and kind of stoop over, you know, and act like you've got some... I don't know. It'd be kind of hard to hide, you know, that you're King Saul because you're pretty big, right? So he's going to do this. And he takes two bodyguards with him. Two men go with him. Of course, they're bodyguards. They came to the woman by night. We can't do this during the day. We don't nobody see what's going on, right? Especially if he gets caught here. He goes by night and he said, please conduct a seance for me and bring up for me the one I shall name to you. Then the woman said to him, look, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? She knows there is a death notice on anyone who practices this kind of witchcraft or anything. She knows that. And God has said, you know, he, he put it in the law that these people are not allowed to stay in the land. You've got to get them out of there. And Saul did that, which is kind of intriguing to me. Of all the laws, you know, that Saul could be doing, I don't know why he seemed to pick on that one and, and really hammer that one out. And it may have been something to make him feel better. You know, I did my job. Look what I did for God. I got rid of all these evil people here. But did you do what God told you? Well, I did all this other stuff. Yeah, interesting. So she's afraid. She's thinking, if I get caught, I'm going to die. So why are you trying to set me up for that? Verse 10, and Saul swore to her by the Lord. This is unbelievable. As Saul says, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Now look how crazy this is. God is the one who outlawed these people. And Paul and Saul here says, I swear by the God, basically who outlaws you, that no harm will come to you. Is that insane or what? You know, that's, that's really messed up. So verse 11, then the woman said, 
whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. Apparently, as soon as he said those words, things started happening. When the woman saw Samuel, verse 12, she cried out with a loud voice. So she's shocked. All of a sudden, like, whoa, what's going on here? And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. So when this all started happening, she couldn't believe it. It surprised her. And she sees who it is, and right away she knows, you must be King Saul. I don't know if it was the extra foot high above everybody that gave away or just a glimpse of Samuel and him together. Something gave her the heads up, okay? And she knew she'd been deceived. Verse 13, the king said to her, do not be afraid. What did you see? Because he knew this lady's seen something here. Uh, And the woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. So I said to her, what is his form? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is covered with a mantle. And that's what the prophets used to wear. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel and he stooped with his face to the ground and he bowed down. So apparently King Saul couldn't see what she saw, okay? But he knows she saw something because of her wild reaction to it. And this is kind of intriguing. This lady supposedly did this stuff for a living, okay? But it shocked her when the, when the real deal happened here. So we know this, these, uh, these spiritists like this, these mediums and the psychics and all these folks today, either they're, they're scamming people, they're just pretending that they're seeing something when they're not, or the people they are dealing with, the, the beings they're dealing with are demonic, okay? And you may run across folks who say, yeah, I went to one of those and they knew stuff about my life that nobody knew, nobody. So it must have been of God. No, it was of the devil. You think about it, the devil's been around a long time. He's got demons on all over all the place, and he's been watching our life. He knows who we are. He's been keeping tabs on us. Uh, I talked to a man, he's a pastor now, that he ran into a demon-possessed guy years ago, and he was intrigued because this guy had come up to him and started telling him things about his life that nobody knew. And he said, there's no way you could have known that stuff. And then he found out this guy was demon-possessed, so he, he got to deal with that situation. But the devil knows stuff, so don't be fooled by any of these things. The devil's fooling a lot of folks. This is evil. It's wicked. God doesn't want us messing around with this kind of stuff. You want wisdom? Where do you go? Go straight to God. He told us that. He gave us an open door. In the book of James, you need wisdom? Ask God. He'll give you wisdom. Promises do that. Don't doubt. Trust him. He'll give you wisdom. Has the Lord done that for you? He's there. His answers are there. You just have to ask, okay? So here's this lady, she's shocked by what she's seen, Uh, and and King Saul is, I guess he's somewhat relieved because he knows who it is. He falls on his face, he's really wanting help here, so he's begging for it. Verse 15, now Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Now some people look at that and say, well, wait a minute, I thought Samuel was with the Lord, right? But think about this, this is Old Testament, this is before the cross, Jesus has not paid the price for the sins of the Old Testament folks yet. So there's the place called Hades the Bible talks about. What Jesus tells us about the rich man and Lazarus gives us some good insight. It was a holding place until Jesus went to the cross, made the sacrifice and was raised from the dead and then he was able to take those people uh, to heaven where they should be with him. Up to this time though, they're in this holding place. There's Abraham's bosom and we see the, the Lord talk about that and we also see there's a place of torment on the opposite side of that. So it would make sense that he was in that place, and that's why he says he came up. Why did you call me up from there? 
And Saul, uh, Saul answered him and he said, I'm deeply distressed, and here's the reason, for the Philistines make war against me and, that's not bad enough, God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore, neither by prophets nor by dreams. I think it's interesting he didn't mention priests in there because he's taking care of that situation himself, right? Therefore, he says, I have called you that you may reveal to me what I should do. <laughs> this is strange humility, isn't it? <laughs> I'm going to call up the dead prophet because I need to know what to do, and I don't know what to do. So verse 16, then Samuel said, so why do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? It's like, if God isn't talking to you, what makes you think he's going to talk to me to tell you something? He's not going to do that. Uh, and in verse 17, the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Remember Saul, uh, Samuel had told him that. Saul had grabbed onto Samuel's robe when Saul was, uh, Samuel was walking away from him and the robe tore. And that's when Samuel turned around and said, just like that robe tore, God's tearing the kingdom right out of your hands. So it's over. He told him that a long time ago. He said the Lord is just doing what he said he was going to do. So verse 18. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. He brings it down to a specific point in time where he said, this was the turning point in your life, King Saul. God told you exactly, specifically, clearly what to do to the Amalekites here, and you did not do it. You didn't follow through. Remember partial obedience? They killed some, but they kept the good stuff for themselves. He even kept the king Amalek alive and all that. It was outright disobedience to the Lord. And he says that was the point. Because you did that, God removed everything from you. The kingdom's taken out of your family's line. Everything has been taken from you because of that clear act of disobedience. When you knew better, you had no doubt about what to do and you refused. So he lets him know this is the deal. Think about this. There are things that we can do in life, indirect obedience to God, that can have some really bad consequences that we will live with and we will regret down the road. And there's not a thing we can do to change those things. So the word of wisdom to us is, don't go there in the first place. When God tells you, do not do this, or he tells you, do this exactly this way, be careful to follow it just the way he said. You don't want to have these regrets that King Saul has here, and there's not a single thing he can do to change it, you know? Verse 19 goes on, Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. So you're going to lead these people in the battle, and it's over for you, and it's over for Israel. They're going to be under the rule of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. Wow. Now what's interesting is, we don't know which side he's going to be on him and his sons. He didn't say you're going to be right next to me. He just said you're going to be with me. So he'll be in that, that holding spot. We don't know. Is he going to be in Abraham's bosom or is he going to be on the other side? Uh, the Lord doesn't give us any detail on that. I think he thinks it's intentional. He doesn't. He doesn't want us to get too bold here and say, hey, if he made it, I can be partially obedient and make it too. I don't think he wants us to see that. He said, the Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. So twice he said, Israel's going to be handed over to the Philistines, going to be under their rule. Evil people ruling over God's people again because of disobedience. 
But he did say here that you and your sons will be here. Again, Saul's decisions affected other people too, his own family. Verse 20, immediately Saul fell full length on the ground. I think it's funny the Lord said that. He's a pretty tall guy. He falls a full length on the ground. That must have been a thump, you know. It says he was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. There was no strength in him. It completely sapped his strength. For he had eaten no food all day and all night. His adrenaline came to an end. <laughs> he was now just flat on the ground. The woman came to Saul and saw that he was severely troubled and said to him, Look, your maidservant has obeyed your voice, and I have put my life in my hands and heeded the words which you spoke to me. Now therefore, please, heed also the voice of your maidservant, and let me set a piece of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. Now I'm not quite sure what to make of that. On the one hand, it sounds like, wow, this, this lady who's not walking with the Lord actually has a little bit of compassion in her, and she wants to help the king. That's possible. But I also noticed the way she said that, Go ahead and eat something so you can go on your way. I think she was saying, go, please, leave me alive and just go. So I, I kind of lean more on that one, but I don't know. Verse 23, but he refused and said, I will not eat. So his servants together with the woman urged him, and he heeded their voice. I don't know how long that took, but finally he arose from the ground and he sat on the bed. Now the woman had a, a fatted calf in the house. She hastened to kill it. She took flour, kneaded it, baked unleavened bread from it, so she brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate, then they rose, and then they went away that night. So, strange, bizarre story. Let, let me uh, throw something in here almost as a side note. When I was in uh, pastoral studies in Bible college, they gave us this passage as one of them to work out because it's got some, it's a difficult passage in one sense. Uh, there's a lot of uh, commentators who take the view that this was not Samuel who showed up here. Because their reasoning is God would never allow something like this to happen with the seance and having, you know, a, a Samuel actually pop up. So this must have been uh, either a demonic thing or something like that or just imaginary thing or something going on or something like that. They didn't like the answer. And there's other commentaries. There's other views too. But the other major view is that this really was Samuel that showed up. So the, the, the professor in our Bible college class gave us the job of working on this passage, give us our answer. He had two authors to check out, two commentaries, and uh, one commentary took the view that this was not Samuel, you know, it was either demonic spirit or something, and the other view said this was definitely Samuel. And these are two well-respected guys. So he said, do your work, give me your pa get, write your paper, and give me your answer. And I took the view here, and I've, I got a good grade on the paper, and I wanted to, I tell you that because I want you to be able to see the same thing. What does it say here in verse 15, just for one place? It says, now Samuel said. The Bible said, Samuel said. <laughs> so I'm going with, it really was Samuel, you know? In other places it says that too. But the point is, we go by what the Bible says, not by what tradition tells us, not by what some well-respected commentator tells us. You know, hopefully, like I said, you read the Bible yourself and you see what it says. Don't believe it because I tell it to you. You read it and you find out, is that really what the Bible says? So this is a good place to go for that. That's why I want to encourage you with that one. But from the story itself here, we see two people that have messed up. David has done things his own way. He's in a mess right now. 
Saul did things his own way and he's in a mess right now. What's the Lord trying to tell us? <laughs> if you do things your own way, man, do not be surprised when you find yourself in a big mess. So I don't know what temptations you're facing right now. If the enemy's trying to trip you up and say, come on, don't do that God's way. You know what that's gonna cost you. You know how hard that's gonna be. You know how long it's gonna take you. Just come over here and do this. It's not a big deal. Everybody else is doing it. I don't know what kind of temptations you're facing, but know that if we do things our own way, if we do them in the flesh, we do them leaning on our own understand, rather than doing it God's way, it will not end good. Man, what a strong message the Lord gives us from the story of these two men's lives. Both of them had a good start. King Saul started out looking like a good guy. You know, David, he started out looking like a good guy. David's gonna repent and come back. Saul's beyond that point, he's not. Even here you notice, after he got the news, did you hear him cry out to God and say, I was wrong, I've sinned, I repent? No, it's not there, it's not in his heart. So yeah, Lord, Lord willing, he protects us from making bad choices. Let's pray. Father, I come to you and I say thank you very much for your word of truth. Lord, we thank you that you speak very powerfully from your word. You clearly tell us, Lord, you clearly warn us not to do things our own way. Father, I know you're not trying to be mean to us at all. You're trying to help us. You're trying to protect us. You want us to have a good life. You want us to not have regrets. Lord, help us to have the heart that says, I want to serve you, Lord, as you make your will clear to me in your word. Help me just to say, yes, Lord. Amen, Lord. I will do what you say. Father, I pray for everybody here. Strengthen us in Christ. Help us have that good discernment to know when the enemy is trying to trip us up, trying to lead us the wrong direction. And Lord, give us a heart like yours that always wants to do the right thing, that always wants to be on the side of righteousness. Father, if there's anyone here today who doesn't know Christ, open their heart to receive Jesus, that they could have a good ending, not a bad ending. Thank you, Lord, for the great patience and long suffering you have with us. And we return all the praise, the glory, the honor, and the thanksgiving to you in Jesus' name. Amen.